Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking about philosophy, in particular the existential philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre and how this can help us think differently about teachers and teaching. To do so, I'm joined by Dr. Alison Brady from UCL Institute of Education in the UK. Alison has a new book with Springer titled Being a Teacher, From Technicist to Existentialist Account, and in it she shows how some of Sartre's key ideas about selfhood, reflexivity and freedom can be practically applied to move teachers away from the constant pressure that you see in many education systems to account for effectiveness, efficiency, performance and so on. This is not as complex as it sounds, but it is unfamiliar territory for a lot of us. So to get in the right headspace, I started by asking Alison for a quick bit of Philosophy 101. For the uninitiated, what is the existentialist tradition and what sort of philosopher was Jean-Paul Sartre? It's a bit of a tricky question because uh, there's actually quite a lot of debate about what the existential tradition is. But I guess what one of the things that ties a lot of these thinkers together is that they were often writing in a time of, you know, particular crises or upheavals. So one of the earliest thinkers was Kierkegaard. He was writing during the time in which Danish society was experiencing this transition from feudalism to capitalist society. And so like a lot of the thinkers associated with existentialism, they're very much interested in the individual and their concrete experience within those particular moments. So less about kind of commenting on the wider upheavals themselves, but more about, okay, what does it actually mean to be an individual within these particular times? So a perfect approach for these particular times, I guess. Yeah, and and interestingly, there's been quite a big revival, I would say. So during the pandemic, for example, I think uh, The Plague by Camus was one of the most popular books, which is a little bit weird. Why do people want to read about (laughs) a pandemic during a pandemic? But I think there is something there, right, about uh, trying to understand what it's like to be an individual in, in this moment in history. Absolutely. And, but you're particularly interested in the work of Jean-Paul Sartre yeah. in the book. Yeah. Um, now, most people will have a passing familiarity with the name, but I mean, who was Sartre as a philosopher, particularly his early ph- philosophy? Yeah, so Sartre, interestingly, was one of the only thinkers that used the term existentialism to describe his work. And he has a particular brand of existentialism that's different to other thinkers associated with the term. The sort of main idea that Sartre thought of as being part of existentialism was this idea of existence precedes essence, which is essentially just the idea that human beings are not born ready-made. They don't have a particular function that sort of predetermines how they act in the world. So we're very different to what he calls brute existence, which is things like pens, benches, trees. He talks a lot about trees in his novels and in his philosophy as well. In the sense that a pen, for instance, cannot be anything other than a pen. It doesn't have any choice to be anything else. Whereas human beings, of course, are very, very different in that sense. So we can make conscious decisions about what type of people we want to become, how we respond to the situations that we find ourselves in. And for Sartre, it's through those kinds of decisions that we become the person that we are. So that's that's sort of his main kind of brand of existentialism. And really what he thought was important with philosophy is that you start from that 
individual subject and you start from their experiences. We're not starting from these more kind of abstract ideas that you often find in philosophy. And he's not really providing, and I think this is important uh, to understand, it's that he's not providing any kind of normative or ethical theory. He's not talking about how people should behave, although I think that's kind of indicated in a lot of what he says, mm. but that's not really what he's setting out to do. It's more to provide a kind of rich description of how people act and why they act the way that they do. So that's kind of what makes him, I guess, distinct from other philosophers uh, during that time. I think one thing as well to say is just in the book itself, I don't talk about Sartre and his life. Uh, he's you know, quite famous for having various, very scandalous kind of affairs with his students. And, you know, he probably wasn't that nice of a guy, I would say. <laughs> so I don't really talk about that. But in one of the chapters, I do look at his autobiography, Words, which if you haven't read Sartre and you're interested, that is absolutely a text that I would start with. It is so fantastic. And it's really just about him writing about his, his childhood but kind of applying some of these existentialist ideas to the descriptions that he gives of his upbringing. So he's not a model teacher, but his ideas can be used to kind of... No, he, he did teach. He taught in France sort of in the 1930s. And uh, I think, from what I understand, I think he was pretty good. I think he liked teaching. He was sort of known as a prankster, so he would play a lot of jokes on his students. But yeah, in terms of ethical relationships with students, that's definitely questionable, yeah. I would say. But what your book does is apply Sartre's thinking to education. And on the, on the education side of things, your book is kind of rooted in a very common complaint and yeah. critique of contemporary education, you know, mm. the con current conditions of teacher evaluation and accountability, mm -hmm. how we're always having to account for teaching and teachers. Can you just go over some examples of this before we deep dive into Sartre? I mean, what sort of things are we talking about here and why do you see it as particularly problematic? Yeah, so I situate the book in reference to, like you said, a very common complaint, which is the sort of influence of neoliberal ideas in education, the ways in which teachers specifically are forced to account for their practices in line with kind of effectiveness discourses. So it's sort of less in a sense about what's actually happening in the classroom, what are the kinds of activities that you engage with in the classroom, but it's more about measuring your practice and meeting particular learning outcomes that are sort of predetermined and just trying to make sure that students are meeting these particular learning outcomes. And of course, it's, it's tied to things like assessment. Uh, you know, there's a reason why teachers are kind of forced to act in this way. And it's also tied to this idea that teachers are in some ways responsible for the social world that we exist in. And, you know, they're responsible for cultivating particular kinds of students that can go out into the workforce. And so all these sort of discourses, you know, that very much pay into the experience of being a teacher today. I would say that what I try to do in the book is post-critical. <laughs> so it's, it starts from a critique of what education is like, but I don't want to just end there. And I feel like a lot of educational research does. They mm. talk about all these, you know, the problems with neoliberal tyrannies in education, and of course, that's all very important, but I think we also need to think about what are the things that we actually do in the classroom that are worth preserving? What, what kinds of descriptions can we give for what it feels like to be a teacher in the room? Or, um, you know, what does it feel like to be in, the rela in a relationship with students? So it's, it's not just critiquing. There's room for hope. Yeah, yes, definitely. And I think there's certainly lots of examples that I, I try to draw on throughout, which point to, yeah, difficulties of being a teacher, challenges, vulnerabilities, anxieties, but not 
in the sense that these are things we need to overcome, mm. but they're just very much part of the nature of teaching. So that's why the existentialist thought comes in, I guess. So you mm. contrast this sort of technicist um, model of education with yeah. Sartre's early existentialist thought. Mm. I'm really interested in going through this one by one because I know nothing about Sartre. <laughs> sure. You argue that there are some. You argue that classrooms are really great places to explore Sartre's ideas, and yeah. but these are big concepts. So if we can go through them in turn. First, you talk about Sartre's key ideas about the self and selfhood, and but also about freedom and responsibility. Mm-hmm. What's the broad thrust of his thinking around those issues and how might they open up new ways of thinking about what goes on in a classroom? Yeah, so like you said, I think Sartre's interesting in the sense that we can apply his ideas to understanding what it's like to be a teacher, but at the same time, the classroom itself is a sort of microcosm where we can test a lot of these ideas because I don't think Sartre was 100% accurate about everything he said. I think some of his descriptions of human relationships do not ring true with what it's like to be a teacher. And when I talk about the self in the book, it's one of the earlier chapters, that is, I guess, more so a kind of a foundation from which we can then understand some of his bigger ideas. But really for Sartre, the idea is that, again, it comes back to this idea of human beings not being ready-made. So we don't have this essential self this kind of cluster of dispositions or character traits that sort of persist over our lives and never change. That's not really what it means to have have a self. You can't see my air quotes, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> so um, for Sartre, the self is something that we continually engage with and refashion over our lives, depending on the particular decisions that we make within the situations that we find ourselves in. And is that a conscious thing? Not always. So in one of his early essays, he uh, distinguishes between what he calls the pre-reflective self and the reflected self, which are obviously very technical terms. So I'll try to maybe give an example. So the pre-reflective self is basically the moments in which we are really immersed in an activity. So let's say you're reading a book on a train, you're really immersed in the story. You, you maybe miss your stop on the train because you're not really aware of what's going on. So for, for Sartre, that's kind of the most fundamental level of being human. It's the most fundamental level of consciousness, which is you know, something he's interested in. As soon as you become aware that you've missed your stop on the train or maybe you think that another person is watching you, you sort of find it difficult to continue reading. Um, you become much more aware of yourself mm-hmm. as a body in that moment. And this is the moment in which we become a kind of reflected self. And that's really where our sense of self comes from. It's something that is being constructed through being hypervigilant of what other people think of us or being very aware of ourselves as bodies in a particular moment. So teachers, yeah. how how does that apply to being a teacher and being kind of aware of yourself as a teacher? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good description of what teaching can sometimes be like. So we can definitely, or I can definitely think from my own experience of moments where you're working with a student on a particular, you know, math problem, and you are so engaged with the student and with the material and with the problem that you sort of forget the learning objectives on the board, you forget the time, the bell rings, and suddenly you're sort of back in the room again as a body in front of others. And it's also in these moments that, you know, the, the sort of roles between teachers and students kind of dissolve mm. in a sense. So there's lots of possibilities in the classroom for these things to take place. 
And I guess one of the issues with reflective practice or with having to focus on those learning objectives or having to be effective all the time is that we're sort of constantly interrupting ourselves and yeah, we're constantly yeah. becoming hypervigilant of ourselves and we don't allow those moments to take place. That's a really interesting way of applying a very kind of abstract idea mm. to a right time. That's, that's super fascinating. I mean, we haven't got time, we could talk for days about all of these things, but you mentioned this idea of bad faith, mm. which is just two words that kind of leap out to anyone that doesn't know about philosophy as something that sounds interesting. I mean, what does Sartre mean by bad faith and how are you applying this idea? And he talked about the anguish of freedom as well, didn't he? Mm. But how do these ideas relate to teachers? I guess the key argument that Sartre is making is that we are free. We're condemned to be free. That's, that's what he says in the sense that you are sort of thrown into the world when you're born and through making these decisions you become who you are. And these are decisions that we sometimes consciously make, sometimes it can be in reaction to the situations we find ourselves in, so he doesn't think that you can just do whatever you want. Mm. He's not talking about practical freedom, he's talking about the extent to which we can make meaning out of the situations that we find ourselves in. Sometimes, however, that can be very anxiety-inducing. It can be very difficult to... Uh, so, for example, if you find yourself in a situation where you are not free, but you become aware of the fact that you're not free because you conceptualise another life for yourself where things are different, and maybe you give up on certain things in your life in order to achieve this, this other person that you want to be, that's, that's a huge responsibility for yourself, and it's also very anxiety-inducing, and it can cause you to have an existential crisis, which is you know coming from that. So in order to kind of avoid that or to cope with that, Sartre thinks that we spend a lot of our lives in bad faith. And bad faith is essentially the idea that we convince ourselves that we don't have any freedom to respond, that we are the same as a pen who is, you know, determined to be a pen for the rest of its existence. So he doesn't mean it in an accusatory sense. I think, at least that's how I interpret it. It's more just a description of what's natural for us in the face of all of these kinds of anxieties around the freedom that we have to respond to the situations that we're in. I think in the case of teaching, you can see this very clearly in terms of the roles that we sometimes adopt. So you might see yourself as a kind of disciplinarian teacher. I certainly, when I first started teaching, that's how I thought I should behave. Mm. I have to come in here and yell at the students and get them to sit down and listen to me. But it always felt a little bit inauthentic. It didn't feel natural to who I was as a person or how I was outside of the class. But I, so I adopt these kinds of roles and I don't really give myself the space to think of other possibilities that I might have for how I act. And I think one of the problems with Sartre is that he places a lot of the emphasis on the individual mm. um, and it's the individual's responsibility to notice when they're in bad faith. I think in the context of teaching, but also just in any kind of industry where we might work, there are institutional factors that incentivize you to be in bad faith. And I think that's definitely true of education. So through teacher training, for example, you might be encouraged not to smile before Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah. You might be, you know, encouraged to see yourself as an authority figure in that classroom, even though, you know, when I started teaching, I was 19. I was pretty much the same age as the students in front of me. Now, all of a sudden, I have to adopt this kind of authoritative role. And of course, I do that because otherwise... I'm open to the anxieties around the fact that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> now, the third thing that you mentioned in your list at the very beginning was the, the, the gaze of the other. Yeah. And, and Sartre also talked about the idea of the look. I mean, mm. and again, <laughs> what did he mean by these things? And how are you applying them to, to education and teaching? So the gaze is probably one of his more famous ideas. And 
it, it was taken up also by Beauvoir, who Sartre wrote with, and she talks about it in terms of the male gaze, which you know we often talk about in contemporary society. Essentially, it comes down to this idea that, okay, yes, we are free. We are free to make conscious decisions about who we are um, or you know, about how we can behave, and then that comes to define who we are. But we're not free in terms of how other people see us because they are also subjects. They also have particular freedom underpinning their actions. And there's not really anything we can do about how people interpret our behaviours and who they think we are as a result of that. And Sartre gives this really good example of shame where you, let's say you're doing something that might be considered shameful. It doesn't really matter if you should feel ashamed or not. Um, what's interesting about shame is that it's what he calls an immediate shudder. It's something that arrives immediately. So let's say you are looking through a keyhole of somebody's door and you shouldn't be doing that. You suddenly hear sort of footsteps and you immediately start to feel ashamed. And part of that shame comes from the idea that you now know that whoever is coming, whether they're there or not, it doesn't really matter, uh, whoever's going to show up is going to see you as a particular type of person. It doesn't matter if they're accurate about, you know, you could be doing that because you heard somebody having, you know, a heart attack or something, right? It might be perfectly innocent what you're doing, but that doesn't matter. You still feel shamed because you know that you're being seen in a particular way by other people. Mm. And of course, again, I think this is really true of teaching as well, right? We sometimes fashion ourselves in a particular way in front of students, right? We, we think about what we wear, for instance, or we think about the kind of tone that we use, the language that we use, because we want to, in a sense, control the recognition that is coming from the students. But we also gradually begin to realize that actually we, we can't control that. Yeah, yeah. And we're always kind of vulnerable to the ways that students see us and the ways that students interact with us. And I just think it's a very yeah, profound example of a truth about teaching. Um, and again, I, I would say that I think Sartre is also limited in some ways in respect to this because Sartre very much sees our relationship with other people as conflictual. So we're always in conflict with this idea that's coming from other people and us trying to assert ourselves. I think in teaching, you can also think of examples of where this kind of conflictual relationship exists, but also where it's suspended. Mm. So when you think back to that math problem and working together with a student uh, where the roles, divisions kind of dissolve, you know, that's an example of a relationship with other people that is not conflictual. It's not based on a kind of struggle, uh, but it's based on... Yeah, a directedness towards something else. That so this this is all really fascinating. And I'm also just thinking about practical applications. Sure. And, and you do talk about in the book about yeah. how these ideas... Because from, the, from what you've said, we need to completely rethink teaching and schooling as, you know, there may be these moments of serendipity where you lose yourself in the flow and there's you know, mm. all sorts of different... Practically, though, how, would, how do you recommend we can put some of these ideas into ways that make a difference to teaching, that snap us out of this technicist <laughs> kind of hellscape? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I could confidently say that, you know, Rishi Sunak is going to read this and change policy. You never uh, know. <laughs> you never know. He but uh, I, I think being realistic, that's probably not going to happen. But I, I do think there are things we can do as mentors to teachers, teacher educators... Um, also, as teachers ourselves, um, in one of the chapters, I talk a lot about autobiographical writing as a way to really make sense of some of these experiences. 
And what's interesting about autobiographical writing is that it's not about the accuracy of the accounts. It's not about how effective you are or, you know, whether this actually happened and I can measure and prove that this actually happened. That's not really the, that's not what autobiographies are good for, but they are good for giving us a space in which to try to make sense of some of our experiences and to account for them in a way that doesn't shy away from some of these challenges and vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. So I think um, when I think back to when I was training to be a teacher, I often had to do these self-reflective exercises every week. And I talk about this in the book as well. And I knew that my mentors were going to be reading this. So I always couched my language in this kind of effectiveness discourse. And I never really felt comfortable in saying how I really felt. And I was really mm. struggling. And I think many teachers starting out really struggle. It's, it's a huge adjustment. So I think if we can find spaces in which to, yeah, be able to discuss these vulnerabilities, um, not as a way to overcome them necessarily, but just to, to talk about how these are, yeah, very much part of teaching and something we need to be something we need to live well with as teachers. And so one of the things that you've taken from Sartre, and I can't even pronounce this word, is the idea of paristheatic techniques? Pa yeah, so parisia, yeah. So first of all, how do you say it properly? <laughs> uh, parisiastic. And then se secondly, how could we apply this to perhaps to education? Because it's about this idea of being candid. Yes. So it, it actually comes from Foucault. Um, and Foucault writes about Socrates as the kind of ultimate parisiastic character because... Socrates, as you probably know, what he's famous for is going around Athens and interrogating different politicians about the kind of rhetoric that they were using to sell particular ideas. And his reason for doing this was to try to encourage people to be more honest and more sincere about what they were saying, and also to kind of demonstrate a sincerity to his students that were there with him. And he saw this as a kind of duty. Obviously, he had to be very courageous, and he took a lot of risks in doing this. So that these are all kind of features of what Foucault calls kind of Parisia. And in a sense, I think it's something that we can try to model in the accounts that we give of teaching. But in order to do that, I think we have to move past the idea that any kind of account giving or accountability has to be about accuracy mm. and effectiveness. I think we need to reclaim that idea of accountability as something more similar to yeah, trying to be sincere about what we've experienced and, and who we are as teachers. And I, I just think that's much more valuable. I'd much rather a teacher be sincere about what happened in a classroom rather than accurate. And also that the process of accounting for oneself is actually something to do with making oneself better. It's, it's not doing it for the institution. Yeah. It's doing it for yourself. Yeah. And it might not lead to any improvement, right? No. Um, and it doesn't have to. But I think it's allowing yourself to, yeah, to be exposed to your commitments and how they've made manif been made manifest in your practice. Now, this stands completely at odds with metrics and yes. performance tables. Is that <laughs> something, what would it take for this kind of ethos, these sorts of ideas, these sorts of principles yeah. to come into the teaching profession? How do we do this? Well, it's difficult, I think, in the context in which we're working. And I fully appreciate that schools need to be accountable in some respects. I'm not trying to dismiss accuracy as something that we shouldn't be concerned with. I think it is important. And some kind of use of metrics makes sense in a lot of contexts, I think. I think it provides valuable information to us. But I think we, we can't just stop there. We, we also have to, yeah, consider these wider values as well and consider the experiences of teachers as not linear in that kind of 
metricized sense. Mm. So I think really the only way that this could be brought into teaching would be through the teachers themselves. And, you know, so it's, it's encouraging them to kind of do this kind of account giving about their own practices and to reflect on their practices in this way. Or through, like I said, teacher education, teacher training, or, you know, through the culture of the school and creating a space in which this can, this can be done. I don't know what it would look like in a policy document. <laughs> no, but it's probably something that has to happen on a local basis. Yes. It doesn't necessarily need to be scaled up, but it can be something that's part of the culture of a school. Mm. Now, you mentioned you've not had any kind of feedback so far from the Prime Minister. No. <laughs> but what's the reaction been to the book? How receptive have non-philosophy audiences been to the book? Have you had any surprising responses or heartening responses? So the reviews that I've gotten have been really positive. I did have one person say that it's renewed their faith in the philosophy of education, which is incredible i'm not sure how true that is but it's incredible that's to hear. something you want to tell the promotion <laughs> yes, committee and that's definitely going on my promotions <laughs> application in terms of teachers themselves i think i've gotten a lot of responses around how it resonated with their experiences which again i think was kind of the aim one of the key aims of the books i talk a lot about my own experience in the book um, not as a way to generalize and to say you know this is something that everybody experiences And of course, you know, there's always nuances, right, Um, depending on where we're coming from and what we look like and how we look like to other people. And so, yeah, so I think that's been that's been really nice. And also it's it's just made people excited about existential thought again, which I'm not obviously the only person doing this, but uh, I play some small role in it. And uh, yeah. Excellent. And so finally, if you're going to do this all over again, (laughs) which philosopher would be next? Who else Mm. might give us a different lens on classrooms and schools that you think could be interesting? So, interesting, I'm writing a second book at the minute on the intersections between literature, philosophy, and education. And partly this comes from my interest in existentialist philosophy, uh, because a lot of the existentialist philosophers were also novelists and playwrights. And I'm kind of interested in looking at literary depictions, not just of education, but of human experiences. And again, thinking about how that might help create a sort of language for teaching and for experiences in education. But I'm also kind of, so with that, I'm also reading a lot of post-critical scholarship, people that see reading as not just something that can cultivate critical thinking, but that actually gives us insight into new worldviews and new perspectives and new ways of thinking about ourselves. I'm really into this idea of slow reading at the minute and kind of contemplative practices and how that's a, a sort of counteraction to the disenchantment that a lot of us might feel in in the current context of education. So the next book will be on the slow teacher and it will reinvigorate people's (laughs) faith in literature. Get rid of of clocks in the the classroom. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, it's really interesting work, Alison. Thanks ever so much for taking the time. Thank you.